Our text is in Amos. So your first challenge is to find Amos. So it's after Daniel and it's before Matthew. And then you just have to rummage around. I'm just, that's all I'm going to give. So Amos, I'll read verses 1 through 8. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and you speak to us still through it. And we pray, Lord, that we would... Uh, be reminded of what was going on back during Amos's day, that you would awaken us and grant us eyes to see how we can apply that to our own time. We thank you now for your blessing and for your presence. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I kind of wish I'd brought this uh, sermon up that I had the opportunity to do it a few weeks ago because then maybe it would have come just before Peter Hammond came. I would have liked to have talked to him about lions. Uh, has anybody here ever uh, heard a lion roar in person? You're somewhere and you hear the lion roar. The, I think the only time I've heard a lion roar, we were, I think at the Phoenix Zoo, it was a long time ago, like 25 years ago, and everybody at the zoo, when you started hearing that lion roar, everybody stopped and looked around. I mean, it was just amazing. That lion was loud. And you know what sound is, right? It's air moving. So that lion moves a lot of air. You feel, it's almost as if the ground shakes when the lion was roaring. You just, it felt... It felt supernatural. It was just really kind of surprising. And I had to go seek it out. And so I think other people, too. So we were all headed towards the lion uh, enclosure. And the lion would roar about every, I don't know, 15 seconds, 10, 15 seconds. And then it would take a break. And it did that for about 5, 10 minutes. It did it for a while. And it was just bizarre. It was really, really scary in a way. You're glad that the lion is in that enclosure. I read a little bit about it after this, and uh, a lion can roar up to 114 decibels in volume. And as a comparison that's popular on the internet, that is 25 times louder than a gas-powered lawnmower. 
So if you walk out of your house and you see your neighbor mowing your lawn or you fire up yours, just imagine a sound that's 25 times greater than that. That's a lion roaring at that distance. And so in our text that I just read to you, you might not have recalled, but I used the word lion three times. And there is another reference. It's used five times in the book. Three of them were in what I read, and there's another one that I'll read starting at the beginning of the book. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Lion is referred to in just the Old Testament prophecy books, so just the major and minor prophets. It's referred to 57 times. And so God likes using lions as an illustration. Sometimes it's just the lions themselves, but other times he uses them as a means, a a simile for himself, and I believe he does that here as well. In what we read... I should have really told you this before I did the reading, but there were seven rhetorical questions that I asked you in Amos 1, uh, 3, verses 1 through 8. Uh, And they were, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? The implied answer of every one of those rhetorical questions was no. You're supposed to be thinking, no, that wouldn't happen. And so, can two walk together unless they are agreed? No. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? No. And so that's interesting. It makes you wonder, well, why would a lion roar when he has prey? Why does he do it then? And I believe I have the answer. They roar when they have prey to terrify them. Because, see, when you're out in the wild and you're a... You're a beast of prey, you don't have an enclosure. That lion is going to get you. And so that lion roars, and these beasts of prey are just, their knees are knocking. And so now this lion is running at them to eat them. So see, what did we read then in our text? See, because you see in verse 4, will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? And then down to verse 8, a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? The word of God, the prophecy that is coming from Zion is directly correlated with that lion roaring. And what is his intention? To terrify his prey. And that's why Amos wrote this letter, to terrify the people to whom he was writing it. He wanted them to recognize that God was a lion and that God was displeased with them, roared in anticipation of attacking them. So the question is, though, will the people listen? We people aren't beasts of burden. We're not dumb animals of prey. We have more than instinct to go on. We have our our intellect, our experience, our being made in God's image. So the question, though, is what did the people do? in response to this from Amos. Now, before I go any further, I wanted to kind of orient you to this interesting handout that hopefully most of you have. 
I, did, I only printed off 100, so I don't know if everybody can have one. But along the top, you see the first letter of the minor titles. So if you don't know them and you find me boring, you can be memorizing them as you're sitting there. Amos is the third book in, The Shepherd of Tekoa. And what I'm about to read will orient us now to the next image down below there, that little eye with the circle in it and the, and the lines spiraling out from it. And so I'll kind of bring it back to this one at a time, and, and some of this is a fill-in-the-blank, so later I'll try to remember to tell you when I'll be telling you the stuff that you can fill in the blanks if you're so inclined. Now, the minor prophets. Uh, the minor prophets were not minor because they were less important than the major prophets. Their books just tended to be smaller. But I believe there is an exception to this, and that's Daniel. Daniel's only 12 chapters, and why then would we consider him a major prophet? when some of the uh, minor prophet books are larger than his. And I think it's because Daniel was just so important. So I think he's the only major prophet that made it to the major prophets because he was major himself. It wasn't, it wasn't that his book was big, I think. Lamentations gets a freebie because that was written by Jeremiah, and he had already written 50 years, so you slap that on the end. So he, get, he gets a free ride with that one. But Daniel, I think, is because he truly was major. So now... The book of Amos is interesting as the minor prophets go because it has so many time indicators. Uh, some of the minor prophets don't have many time indicators in their books at all. They don't mention who was king. And so there's very little for us to go on. And when I was trying to piece together a chronology because I wanted to put the books in chronological order, and I could have put them in chronological order, I could have chosen from any number of chronological orders of the minor prophets that you can find out there. And so I thought, well, that's a bust. I really don't know. I'll bet Pastor Kaiser knows. So I should have got his chronological list of the minor prophets before he left. But anyway, Amos is one of the earlier ones. Uh, Hosea and Jonah are very early. They're probably a little bit earlier than Amos, but Amos is very early. So he probably wrote this book around 760 to 755 B.C., and you know that in B.C., the numbers are working down to zero. And so he wrote from 760 to 755 B.C. He's writing to the northern kingdom primarily. He's entered the northern kingdom. He's entered the city of Bethel, which is the religious center of Israel. Now, this is after they've split into Israel and Judah. So he's gone to Bethel to proclaim this prophecy. The northern kingdom has existed now for about 175 years. It had split after King Solomon had passed away and his son Rehoboam took over and then refused to treat the, uh, the, southern, the uh, northern tribes with greater uh, uh, freedom and greater compassion, reduced their taxes, so then they rebelled. And they've been separated ever since. So now, all the books of the minor prophets have major emphases. The prophet himself is from somewhere, and usually we know where that is, but then he has been told by God to go somewhere, preach against these people. So, for instance, we all know Jonah. Jonah went to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, far, far away, 500 miles away from where he was when God commanded him to go there. And we know what Jonah did. Instead of going northeast, he went west. Go west, young man. But God dragged him back, made him go out to Nineveh, and then the Assyrians were converted. We know Obadiah was written against Edom, and so those were the neighbors to the far south. 
And uh, all of the minor prophets had some emphasis, and so we'll get to what uh, Amos's emphasis was, but I first want to introduce you to him. Now, we already read in verse 1, it says, the word of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa. Some from that say then that he was probably a wealthy man, that he was a sheep breeder, not just a shepherd, but there is other evidence in the book to really indicate that that's not likely. I'm not going to cover this later, but in chapter 7, he is being confronted by the priest of Bethel. Now, this is an ungodly priest. This is a priest of the idolatrous kingdom of the north. But he confronts Amos, and Amos answers him in 7.14. He says, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Now, that is not a fruit that is grown in vast orchards to uh, make money on. Sycamore fruit tend to be the lesser fig trees that are wild and growing in these areas. So he's a shepherd in Tekoa, sheep breeder, and yet he's also having to scavenge for food in the hills most likely because that's why he would mention that he is a uh, tender of sycamore fruit. So with that, I believe we can surmise that he was uh, not a well-connected man. Tekoa is nowhere. It's near Bethlehem, and Bethlehem, we know, is O little town of Bethlehem, so we know that it's tiny. Tekoa is much, much smaller. When you leave Tekoa to go to the big city, you go to Bethlehem. So Tekoa is out in the middle of nowhere, and this is where Amos was from, but he's confronted by God, told to go to Bethel, and he does. Bethel's not far away from Jerusalem. It's only about maybe 8, 10 miles from Jerusalem. Uh, it's on the southern border of Israel. So now, I want to again take you to the diagram that you have, and let's uh, walk through these, these nations that I've only given you the first letter of as I read uh, Amos chapter 1. And I actually have a cheat sheet. I printed out all of Amos, and I kind of went after it with color markers, so I'll read from that. And uh, I won't read everything, but I'll read you a little sentence from each. Uh, in chapter 1, verse 3, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Damascus is the capital of Syria, and so that's the neighbor to their northeast, and you can see it there with an S. Verse 6, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke punishment. Gaza is one of the cities of the kingdom of Philistia, and so that's with the P down there to the southwest. Verse 9, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. And I'm sure Caleb remembers Tyre. He wrote a little booklet on it for PHF. Tyre is a small island nation up in the Mediterranean, very wealthy to their north. For three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Edom is the E way down to the south there. That's Edom. That's uh, descendants of Esau. And then in verse 13 of chapter 1, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke punishment. The Ammonites are out there to the east. It's the A. And uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites were sons of uh, Lot. And then going into chapter 2, we have the Moabites. For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And then in verse 4 of chapter 2, for three transgressions of Judah... And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So now what he's done is he's surrounded Israel with these rebukes. He's rebuked Syria, 
Philistia, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Judah. And the Israelites are probably thinking, yay, yay, I hate these people. I especially hate those Judeans because they think they're so special. They've got Jerusalem in the temple. And then he turns his uh, words to judging Israel, and he says, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. So now he's included them. He's gone one beyond seven, which is interesting. Because see, three is a perfect number in the Hebrew. Seven is a perfect number in the Hebrew. And now he's combined them for three transgressions and for four. He's not saying they're limited at three or four. He's saying they reached completeness with three. And we've gone way beyond that to kind of like this second whole level of completion at seven. And then when he go, go, goes through the nations, he gets up to seven, and that's where Judah is. And he, and he adds Israel, the eighth one, the one that makes it off, the one that goes farther than what listeners may have thought comfortable. Now, why, why did God take his time with judgment? That's a question. It's a very mysterious question. When Abraham was still Abram, in Genesis 15, and he tells, tells Abram, he says, I am going to send you into exile, Egypt, where you, your posterity will be enslaved, and yet eventually I will bring you back and tell him. He says, because the, the Amorites are not complete. So he sends Abraham's posterity down. Now, he's in the promised land now. That's where he is when God makes him that promise. That you're going to disappear for hundreds of years. Your posterity will come back to take this. Because at that point, the, the iniquity of the Amorites would be complete. So God measures sin. Have you ever tried to measure sin? Have you ever tried to track it? I have. I thought if I attempted to track my sin, I might get better. I might not want to then track it. And... It's very depressing. And so in my daily planner, I would put little black circles under the date when I sinned, sinned, sinned again, sinned, sinned again. And so then after weeks of this, I look back and all these black circles are under my dates and it's just depressing. You would think that by focusing on it, you can remember that you don't want to do that and you can forget about it. Well, it almost makes you obsess over it. And so I realized after only a few weeks that I don't want to continue to do this. It isn't that I didn't want to, it isn't that I wanted to neglect mortification of sin. It's just I realized this is not the proper way to do it. I can't just start listing them all because I'll spend all my time doing that. I need to be doing other things, not sinning and not trying to be uh, complete in my listing. I need to go do other things. So I, and I don't think any of us, it's possible for us to truly list our sins but God can, and God does. That's what makes His mercy all the more miraculous, is that He knows all that stuff, and He keeps a very detailed list. He specifically spoke of these people's sins, iniquities, as not yet being full to the brim. And when that happens, He's going to judge them. So now we, we've addressed these nations. We've addressed... Uh, for three, uh, the, the next one for three transgressions and for four. And so what I want to go to next is uh, what specifically God is doing about this. Uh, his rebukes had begun far, far away. 
and then they'd kind of narrowed in on Israel. But before we get to Israel, let's talk a little bit about these other nations. What was it that was so bad that they had done that was bringing this judgment upon them? So let's begin with Syria. And you have the answers in here. This is not a fill in the blank. You have them on the right side there. So for Syria, I'll read uh, 1.3. For three transgressions of Damascus, Syria, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Gilead was an area north, kind of like a, a part of Israel off towards the uh, Jordan River, and so the Ammonites are right there. They're right next to them. So if you look at that little map that I've drawn, uh, Gilead would be kind of between the I and the A along that line there, reaching down towards Moab. And that was what they'd done. They threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Uh, some historians say that they ran these over the people, over the citizens. I mean, they, they killed people with farm implements. And in verse 6, with the... Uh, Philistines, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. From this I infer that the Edomites were really big on slave trading and had been for centuries. For three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom. Another one that is guilty of slave trading, of initiating this slave trading with the people of Edom. And that's why God is judging them. For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now he moves away from the slave trading. It's not that that's what he talks about. Now listen to this. Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. Long ago when I talked uh, through Numbers 22 in the communion meditation series, we talked about this. Balak. Balak called Balaam up. Hey, these people are all here invading my land. It's when they were coming up from Egypt. And the, the, uh, the massive number of people, yes, it's scary, but Moses had sent people to them saying, we will not come into your territory. You are family. You're, you're descendants like we are. Our, our forefathers were cousins. And yet they refused to hear that, and they never did. I mean, they were always fighting against Israel. They were always opposed to them. And so God eventually holds them accountable for this. And so what I have there is that they were vengeance. They, they, they just had their hearts set on vengeance, the, the Edomites did. So now, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they were pregnant women in Gilead, they enlarged their borders. Remember, they're coming into Gilead as well. And they're destroying people, you know, cruelly killing people to prevent them from multiplying and thus taking this land they want to have as theirs. So then we go, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I was a few years ago when I commented on the uh, perversion that is cremation, I cited this as one of the proof texts that God hates cremation. And so uh, people that claim to be Christians and are beginning to practice cremation are certainly not honoring God. They're not pleasing God in His Word. And God held uh, Moab accountable for having done that to the king of Edom. For three days before, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, this was different because rejected the law of the Word. So if you think about this, God's holding all of these nations accountable for what? For inhumanity towards man. It's the second table of the law. 
but he's holding Judah accountable for the first table. Because they are covenant people, and they rejected him and his word. And so then we turn to Israel again. See, that, those were the sins of the seven nations. Uh, cruelty against Gilead, two of them. Enslaving people to Edom, two of them. Uh, uh, unlimited vengeance, always seeking to get even with everybody. And uh, then Moab burning the bones of the kingdom. And then Judah for rejecting the law. Okay. So now uh, on, on, your, on your handout, you can see that there is another section to the right on Israel. So I gave you the ones that I just went through. And so I'm going to list a 12 sins of Israel. Now, to each of these first nations, we're told this. It's the same as So I will send a fire upon, and it shall devour the strongholds. Each of those seven nations that I've just described had that same, same condemnation. Israel did not. That's not said directly of Israel, and so we'll get to that eventually. I just wanted to point out that there's a minor difference, and I believe it becomes apparent as you go through the remainder of the book of Amos why uh, God is taking this further to the next level with Israel. So now, I'll give you these 12 if you want to list them. I'll try to take my time. So now, Amos devoted only one or two verses to each of these first seven nations in why it is that he's bringing judgment upon them. Amos begins describing the judgment upon Israel in chapter 2, verse 6. He goes through the rest of that chapter, and he goes on for six and a half more chapters, speaking of judgment upon Israel. So what the other seven nations get one or two verses, uh, I, Israel is getting all seven chapters. I mean, it's just an enormous piling on of the sins. Now, that's not all sin and judgment, but still... What I did, when, this is the whole book of Amos printed on 16 pages, and the first line I drew was the pink line, because that's judgment. That's where God is listing some judgment upon that. And look, whole, the whole page, the whole third page, uh, three-quarters of the next page, a quarter of the next page, about half the next page, half the next page, uh, half of that page, three-quarters of that page, a little bit of that page, half of that page or more, about half of that one, about half of that one, all, almost all of that one, a little bit there, and then he gets to God's blessings. I mean, Amos wanted to uh, take some heat off in that final chapter, and we'll get to that later. But still, that's an awful lot of judgment. Amos is just coming down on them, coming down on them, coming down on them, and we'll go into some details about that. So first, though, I want to just kind of run through 12 sins that I have ferreted out of this, some only once, some several times, about why God was bringing judgment upon them. First, greed. And there are several examples, but I'll just give you one. They were selling the righteous for silver. So now that could also be injustice, oppression, but I listed it under greed. Lewdness. I won't even read to you this, but in chapter 2, there's this horrible lewdness uh, it's really the only sexual sin that they have in all of these chapters, uh, but yet it is very perverse. Number three, injustice. So the priests would drink the wine of those that they had fined. So in other words, they would find people just to get stuff. Does that remind you of something? So now they're getting stuff and they're using it uh, on their own pleasures. Uh, they would sleep on the clothing that had been pledged 
which by law should have been returned every evening to these people because clothing was important to these people. It was some of their most valuable assets, and they were supposed to return it every night. They were not doing that. They were sleeping on them. So that's injustice. Number four is violence. Again, they don't go into a lot of violence with the Israelites specifically, but one phrase says that they store up violence and robbery. And then the fifth one is theft. There are several examples of this, but one is they make the ephah small and the shekel great, so they're stealing. Just as uh, Jesus, in correcting the money changers, he accused them of stealing. And uh, this is what they were doing in their temple in Bethel as well. Number six, idolatry. It, uh, Bethel is referred to as a temple of the kingdom. And repeatedly, and we'll go into this in more detail in a little bit, but God is holding Israel accountable for being faithful to him. Number seven, decadence. Now, in and of themselves, some of these pleasures, these kind of rich gifts, they probably wouldn't be evil. But when you hear them described in Amos, you know they're evil. And uh, one, this one says that they anoint themselves with the finest oils. Number eight, oppression. Oppress the poor, crush the needy, trample the poor. That's a theme throughout this uh, book. Number nine, revelry. They would drink wine in bowls. And I think uh, recently Pastor Kaiser mentioned that, that, that when it's referred to as wine being in bowls, it's meant for convenience, for quantity and volume. No longer is a little uh, glass enough. No, I want bowls of this stuff. We're, we're here to get ripped. So that's number nine. Number 10, rebellion. Uh, several times, and I'll go into that later, but God says, I gave you this, but you did not return to me. He repeats that with Israel. Number 11, bribery. And that's again referred to throughout, taking a bribe in order to pervert justice. And number 12, the last one, idleness. They lie around in beds of ivory. They stretch themselves out on couches. Again, there are times where such things can be fine, but this typifies their lives. These are the lives of wealthy people who are exploiting the poor and, and bringing injustice to their land, all that they can just lie around more, be lazier, and drink more wine. Now, Israel's punishment is in response to all of these sins that I have just listed. And so now again, uh, if we go back here, there is a frequency of topics that I found in Amos, and that's down to the left. That's the title that I have there. And I have six colors on this. I already told you that pink was judgment. And so the first one there is judgment. I found that to be in nearly two-thirds of the book. The next most common one I had in orange on here, and that was sins. Sins being enumerated. Uh, the 12 types of which I just listed for you. So that's the one that was 22%. In other words, over a fifth of the verses refer specifically to, to Israel's sins or to the sins of the other nations. 13% are blessings. As dark as this book is, you'll see green highlights. And those are points where God is pointing out past blessings, present blessings, and the promise of future blessings. The purple was, were examples of the decadence, the avarice, the wealth, the greed of these people. And that was in 11%. Uh, and then the next one is in blue, and that's the idolatry, the syncretism. That's where God is condemning them for abusing uh, uh, His right to rule over them and to be their God. They instead seek out these idols. And the last one 
which is interesting to me, is God's majesty. He points to his own majesty only 3% of the time. And so God is not obsessed about himself in this book of Amos. Yes, he's offended. Yes, he's holy. He could go on and on about his holiness. If you add, though, where throughout Amos he says, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, that bumps up quite a bit. You go from 3% to like 14%. And really, he is speaking with authority when he says, thus says the Lord. He's exercising his lordship. But I didn't include that, and so it really is a low number. Okay. So now, if you didn't want to fill that in, if you, need, if you need one, just let me know what it was, and I'll tell it to you. But there were judgment, sins, blessing, decadence or wealth, uh, idolatry or syncretism, and God's majesty. Okay. Now, I want to highlight a few of the specifics of what God is bringing uh, to bear, some of the punishments that God is going to bring to bear on Israel specifically. And I'll just read a few of these. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength. Nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. This letter is coming to them around 755 B.C., the nation was destroyed and taken into captivity in Assyria, 500 miles away, uh, about 30 to 35 years later. And so he's talking to many people that will suffer this. At least their children will, if they happen to be older. So let's read another one. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. The Lord has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. When the Assyrians invaded and they were toting away all their human booty, it was said that they would just stick a meat hook in you and then attach the next one on the chain to the person behind you. And so then you just follow along. Who's going to try to escape that type of, of pain? If you've never read the uh, abandonment of the Philippines by the U.S. troops, I mean, it was similar there. A large number of, of American troops were killed uh, when the Japanese took over that island, like 22%. I mean, they would just beat and stab and kill at, at will. The Japanese soldiers hated the fact that people uh, uh, surrendered. They thought you were a coward. I mean, every Japanese soldier wanted to die for his country instead of being taken captive. And so they vastly mistreated their captives because they had no respect for them. And so that is kind of what was happening with these Assyrians. They just stick these hooks right into the people. So let me see. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, 
and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. I think that's good enough. It's pretty dark. Amos has some pretty dark uh, stuff in there. Now, I want to show you kind of a ray of hope, though, because, yes, God is writing this in 755 to 760 B.C. They are going to be taken captive 35 years later. We know that now in retrospect. But this is still a warning. This is still God firing a warning shot. This is still him roaring at his prey, not ripping them limb from limb just yet. And so there is still time for them to respond. And what I want to share with you is this is Israel. These are people that 170 years ago rebelled against not only the southern king, but against the religion. Because Jeroboam got up there, and as soon as he solidified his kingship, he said, oh, no, now I have to establish a new religion because these people are going to want to go to Jerusalem for their, for their annual festivals, and I can't allow that. And so he set up those golden calves at Dan and Bethel. These are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt, O Israel. And so then many people accepted that. I would imagine that there were at least some Orthodox believers at that point that said, no, I can't stand for this, and they emigrated south. But still, though, those that remained submitted to what it is that Jeroboam had done. So let me read to you. Uh, some of these things where you can see that God still regards Israel as his possession, even though they'd rebelled against him so much longer ago. So let me see. This is in uh, 2, starting at verse 9. It was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, and he's speaking of them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up son of your, some of your sons for prophets. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for her transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altars shall be cut off and fall to the ground. So here, so many years, almost two centuries, after they'd set up these golden calves, God is promising them that he will destroy them. And the last one I have. Behold, the days are... Oh, those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Beersheba was actually down in southern Judah, but yet it had also become a high place, a religious center, one of these kind of spiritual centers that nowadays, I, I don't know if you've ever researched New Age religions, but there are such spiritual centers now on our earth. And there are people that are into this mystical stuff, and they'll travel to those. That's where they want to go and, and worship Gaia, the, the mother, mother of uh, earth. But so anyway, this is what he says he's going to destroy. As your God lives, O Dan. And he has it in a small g. As your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Bathsheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. They're going to, God is going to destroy them. So he loves them. He loves them enough to regard them as uh, his possession and he's attempting to rebuke them, to bring them back. But, but, in chapter 4, we see a detailed uh, dialogue of their response to this. And, of course, it's not, it's not good news. It's bad news. In verse 6, he says, 
I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Now, at first you think, well, that's wonderful. You know, they have cleanness of teeth. That's in the old culture, too. I don't know if they had toothbrushes back then. But I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. See, your, cleath are your teeth are clean because you have nothing to eat. There's nothing to make them dirty with. And so that's a sad thing. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I withheld the rain from you. And then he goes into details about how he'd send the rain and they had to chase after the rain. There were communities that didn't get rain for months and months because he wanted them to be thinking about this. If you want blessing, seek me. Yet they did not return to him. I struck you with blight and mildew, yet you did not return to me. I sent among you a pestilence, yet you did not return to me. I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses, yet you did not return to me. I overthrew some of your cities, yet you did not return to me. So God was lovingly rebuking his people Israel all this time, and yet they were refusing to accept his rebuke and be changed by it. Six times it says, yet you did not return to me. Now, there is an aspect of Amos that I didn't really see the commentators cover that I think is, is interesting that I want to draw out because I believe it's true. And let me read the phrases first, and I want you to listen for the words that are action words. Very first, we begin at, at, at verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And then in 312... Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Earthquake, corner of a couch, part of a bed. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Great houses are in fragments, little houses are in bits. So, uh, 13. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will not, never forget any of their deeds, shall not the land tremble on his account. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the peoples as one shakes with a sieve. Now, what is it that I read to you? It was about trembling, shaking, destruction, big houses, little houses. And in the very first verse, he says he's writing this, two years before the earthquake. I believe what happened is this. Amos is called to go to Bethel. He goes there. He proclaims all of this. He comes back and he records it, and he records it after the earthquake has struck Israel and destroyed many, many, many of what it is that he was preaching against. So see, we tend to think of Amos as, as prophesying the destruction based on the Assyrians coming 35 years later. But I think the retribution began immediately. It began very quickly. It began within two years. Because he returns from this, 
And Amaziah, that priest of Bethel, had told Amos to get out, and Amos then rebukes him. He prophesies, actually, that man's eventual uh, privation. His wife is going to be a harlot in the streets. Uh, he's going to live in poverty. His children will be killed and taken captive. He prophesies all that about the priest of Bethel. So I believe that this earthquake was sent within two years to destroy much of what he had seen. The great cities, these altars, all these things that he hints at throughout his book have been crushed, have been broken. Now, I want to look at four visions. I can't cover all of Amos, but as you can see, I'm covering a lot of it. And so I hope I'm not boring you to tears, but Amos is nine chapters, and so it must be distilled down. It would be wonderful if we could preach about it for 10 or 12 weeks, but that's not going to happen. And so I wanted to just give you a big taste Amos and what it is, why he wrote this book, and how important it is. So now I want to take you to chapter 7. So in chapter 7, starting at verse 1, I'll read some visions. The tone of the book has changed at this point. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. So in other words, the latter growth is like the most productive time of this harvest. You're now bringing in all these crops. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. So now see, after the king's mowings, that means you're going to get it. You know, The king took his part. Now you people get to enjoy what it is you've been working on. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, so the locusts have eaten all the grass. He's seen this in his vision. And so he says this, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep when it was eating up the land. So this huge fire has come to the land. And Amos said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line. Now, for you kids, this is not a line with plums on it. A plumb line is a string that you attach a weight to that lets you see if something is straight because gravity will make sure that it hangs straight, and then you want to build a wall that's straight. And so that's why this plumb line is here. You're measuring to see the skill with which someone built that wall. So the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand, and the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. God, with this third vision, he did not allow Amos to ask him or intercede for the people. He did not allow Amos to speak. Because as soon as Amos saw the vision, the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And then he told him what he saw, and then he said, I will never again pass by them. This plumb line is being used to measure the defects in my children, and I'm judging them. And then we have the incident with Amaziah in the middle of seven. Then we go to eight, and there is another vision. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, again, he didn't let him ask, 
The end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord. And then he says this, so many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. This is like some sad, sad poetry that's included here. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. God's tolerance for sin was great in that time. He tolerated sin from the Israelites from the day they were founded, from the day Jeroboam set up the golden calves. And the people of Israel were prevented, not necessarily prevented, but still it was very difficult for them. And so many chose rain. These are your gods, O Israel. They brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so then they began worshiping those calves. And if they couldn't get to Dan or Bethel, they just worshiped them on the high places that Jeroboam set up. So now see, the people of Israel, God had lost patience with them, and eventually he brought justice upon them. I think very quickly. I think within two years, the judgment began falling, and it continued to fall until the Assyrians came in and carried them all away captive. And so I want to compare modern America to Israel upon these 12 things that we went through earlier. And let's do this. First, greed. Jesus said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He did not say money is the root of all evil, right? He said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Yet, we do live at a time when money is revered, far more than God is. See if you can spot this quote, the speaker of this. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, for knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. Anybody recognize that quote? It was spoken by Michael Douglas in a movie released back in the late 80s called Wall Street. And he's this villain by the name of Gordon Gecko. yet he epitomized, and I think he does epitomize, the way many people on Wall Street live and think and act. They will only obey the law if they have to obey the law, if they can skirt it, if they can get around it, if they can be assured of making a profit. Even if it comes on the backs of the little people like us, they're going to do it. That's greed. Second is lewdness. While Amos does not cover a lot of perversion, he does cover one that's very perverse. Uh, lust and lewdness and perversion are rampant in our land. Uh, if we were to go back 100 years, I think you'd be shocked at how staid and prosaic sexual life was in the United States. It would be a wonderful thing. We're not there, and we're not returning there anytime soon. Perversion is here, and it's getting worse and worse with each generation. Third is injustice. And the injustice is, I think, ramping up at this point. Our daily lives are so politicized. We are living in such a polarized time between the liberals and the conservatives. Uh, our daily life is political. The Christians are demonized. 
and then injustice is on the rise, and it rises quite quickly. Fourth is violence. Now, violence in our culture is widely tolerated if it's perceived as being politically correct. Violence is no longer something to be shunned by everybody. What is the end you have in mind? If the end you have in mind is good, then the means to that end may, perchance, involve violence. I think we're getting to that point now where we no longer condemn violence as a culture. It's acceptable. Fifth is theft. And theft by the government is definitely on the rise. And if it's on the rise at the upper levels, it will reach the lower levels. I read a book by Sorokin. I loved this book years ago, P.T. Sorokin. He's the guy that founded the sociology department at Harvard like 100 years ago. And he wrote a book called The Power of Morality, or The Morality of Power. And he contrasts, he says there are three types of people in the, in the world. There are those who make the rules, typically the politicians. There are those that break the rules, typically the criminals and the criminal syndicates. And then there's that vast middle, us, the ones that are expected to obey the rules. What P.T. Sorokin pointed out is that these people and these people are more alike than different. And it's true. You intuitively know that to be true. If you look at how many politicians have been uh, convicted, not even just indicted, but convicted for crimes in America alone, they vastly outnumber the normal people in the middle. We tend to bring criminals into positions of power in this country. Why? Because they want it so much. They'll kill people to get it. So surely they're going to rise unless they're opposed with great energy. And that's hard to do because we all just want to live peaceful lives. We just want to have people that aren't idiots up there, that aren't going to run roughshod over us. And yet that's not easy given the way our government works. That was theft, number five, idolatry. And we live in a time in which idols proliferate. When God is demoted from the throne of our heart, something else will take his place. Number seven, decadence. I had an Indian coworker this week, and it's, it's kind of fun to talk to him. He uses these colloquialisms that are just so far outdated. He mentioned the filthy rich. And I thought, well, I hadn't heard that term in a long time. And it reminded me of the term that was in the King James, filthy lucre. And so then I look on the King James online. Filthy lucre doesn't appear there. I'm like, well, wait a minute, where did it go? And so you kind of have to dig around. These Bibles keep changing. Online Bibles change. This one doesn't. My, this one doesn't change words on me. But the online ones change. So filthy lucre is used in 1 Timothy 3 to say that elders and deacons cannot be considered those that are going after filthy lucre. In other words, money just for the money, money for the sake of power, money for the sake of all those bad things that we do with money. So number eight, oppression. I believe the poor of our country, and this is mostly spoken of with respect to people, I believe both the far right and the far left can bring uh, oppression to the poor of this nation. It's obvious when the poor can point out people on the right that are violating their uh, rights violating the laws, you know, exploiting loopholes and things like that. It's more difficult, I think, for the poor to see that they are ex being exploited by the left because what they're being made is dependent upon them. They are a kept people. They are becoming more and more chattel property 
of the rich liberals. But yet, oppression is the end result. Number nine, revelry. Now, the weekends used to be short. The weekends used to be Friday and Saturday, maybe Sunday, if you were a real hard partier. But I believe now, for the partiers, the weekend starts Wednesday, and it ends Sunday night. You have Monday and Tuesday to recuperate, and then you go back onto the party cycle. Uh, when I go to places, it's really quite common now. Monday and Tuesday is a slower night. But boy, it really starts getting busy. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, it's, all these places are packed. So see, revelry, drug and alcohol abuse across our country, it's not just the poor that indulge in that. Everybody does. It's all across the socioeconomic spectrum. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a song, Everybody's Working for the Weekend, and I think that's still true. Everybody makes money only to blow the money partying uh, in what they term the weekend, revelry. Number 10, rebellion. Respect for authority was common until the 1960s. I think it identified us as a culture. We were vastly law-abiding, vastly respectful of authority, but all that's changing very quickly. And what's interesting to me is when I see uh, people like my Indian friend who sits next to me, I, I, have a lot, I know a lot of Indian friends who have emigrated essentially to the U.S. in the last 10 to 15 years. They really like America. It's, it's much nicer here than in India. You've got, you've got good, solid law. You've got law-abiding people. Yet what I think they don't really see is that that's fading, and they don't realize that we have that, unlike Vishal Manglawadi, who knows that as a Christian Indian. Many of the Indians I talk to aren't Christian, and so they don't even see that the way we live is predicated on the Christian foundation, that they are, in a sense, assisting in eroding. So that's rebellion. Bribery, number 11. I am thankful. I did not vote for Donald Trump, but I am thankful that he's there instead of Hillary Clinton. I would hope that his White House will have much less bribery and theft and pay-to-play type of things. At least that was promised. And if you can believe the vice president-elect, uh, Pence, uh, he seems to be serious about this. And if he's very actively engaged with Trump, maybe it will be. It would be hard to imagine, though, having, having it worse than if another Clinton was in there. It, it, they really uh, are filthy rich now, and it's filthy lucre. They cheat, they lie, they steal, they murder. They do all these things to get ahead and take advantage of everybody. And so hopefully, at least for four years, we might have bribery on the wane. And number 12 is idleness. This is shocking. Over 100 million Americans now receive means-tested assistance from the federal government. I'm not talking about Social Security when you retire and hit 65 or whatever and retire. I'm not talking about a pension. I'm talking about means-tested assistance where the federal government gives you some type of money. Over 100 million people. This is a much bigger number than it was five years ago. The last eight years, this number has grown steadily. And so it cannot continue. Our economy has been great, relatively, the last eight or nine years. It's not gone down. It's kind of been level. Can you imagine if we have a significant downturn in the economy with this level of idleness at work in our country? Uh, it, it just doesn't bode well for the future. But now, so dark. I am so dark and depressing. And so was Amos. I'm just telling you like Amos told it, okay? But there is the last half of chapter 9 in Amos where there's an awful lot of green. Let me show you. 
See, he starts there with green. There's some here in, in seven, the latter part of seven. He ends all with green. And so that's what we're going to do too. I want to read you Amos 9, starting at verse 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. What does that mean? A plowman is the person that's plowing up the ground in order to plant crops. The reaper is the one who's harvesting those crops. And he's saying that you will be reaping so long that you will be interfering with the next crop. So what he's saying is that you've got this bumper crop. And the treader of grapes with him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. Uh, during uh, Josh's prayer earlier, I was wondering if he was uh, doing this because of Amos, because he was essentially quoting uh, like, uh, things like this. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. I want to read also from uh, Zechariah 10, verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah. Now, Zechariah was a book that came much later, centuries later. And so this is long after both kingdoms have fallen. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. Now, see, Judah is the kingdom of Judah, the southern tribes. It was mostly Judah and Benjamin that consisted of those. And so who was Joseph? Remember, Joseph lost. His two sons displaced him. And who were his two sons? Remember? Ephraim and Manasseh. And, and Jacob switched his hands, and so he gave the greater blessing to Ephraim. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have mercy on them. They shall be as though I had not. They shall be as though I had not cast them aside, for I am the Lord their God, and I will hear them. So you're, you're reading this like 400 years after they've rebelled, 150 years after they've gone into captivity. And so he still has great love for his covenant people. And so that's the first point. I want to make three points in closing. The first if you don't understand the covenant, that's okay. All you need to understand is that God has established a covenant with people and he honors his promises. That covenant comes with many blessings and the first of which is the second point, that God's mercy is new every morning. And I think it must be, because like I said earlier, he's keeping track of the sins. And so his mercy, he would have to replenish it every morning because he's pouring it out constantly upon us. Now, we can grow weary, honestly, of his patience because we want justice to be performed on this earth. But we benefit from God's patience. We benefit from his mercy personally. And so let's not be hasty to want justice. 
Let's enjoy God's mercy. Let's appreciate God's mercy. And so when justice comes, though, let's appreciate that as well. It will mean that we're in difficult circumstances, more difficult than now, but hey, there's more to life than living comfortably. And so we must not want comforts above uh, fellowship with God. So God loves his covenant children. God's mercy is new every morning. And if those aren't enough, we know as God's children that all of what we experience on this earth is temporal, is temporary, that we have heaven waiting for us. And so we dare not grow disenchanted with life on earth when our lives are so short by comparison. We will spend an eternity in heaven with the Lord. And so let's have compassion upon those that we know that don't know the Lord because if they continue in their sin, they will not. And so we have this tremendous blessing. So while we have God's mercy being poured out upon us and his forgiveness, let's share that with people. They might not embrace thanks. They might not know these bullets that they're dodging. But we know. We know what happened to the people of Israel and these other nations, to Syria and Philistia and Tyre and Edom and Ammon, Moab and Judah. They all fell. They were all judged by God. And so let's not be like them. Let's warn people while there's time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness, for your patience in uh, judging our sins and the sins of our culture and our society. Uh, we listed 12 ways in which the United States is certainly no better than Israel and in some is probably worse. And uh, yet, Lord... Uh, your mercy is new every morning. You had planted this nation as a light on the hill, and it uh, shone brightly for centuries. We don't want to give up on that as being possible again. And so we pray, Lord, we pray for the future of this country, and we know that it is uh, caught up in the behavior of your children. And so we pray, Lord, that your children on this earth would be faithful and that your children in this country would be faithful, loyal to you, and opposing evil in themselves and in their world. We give you thanks, Lord, for your kindness. We give you thanks for Amos and his life and his uh, trip to Israel, Bethel. And we pray that we would learn from it, that we would not forget. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray and give you all the praise and glory. Amen.